A quick warning before we begin. This episode will contain the names of people and places that are entirely fictional, which I'm sure to mispronounce often. I hope you'll find it in your heart to forgive me. Enjoy the show. Between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of, when shining kingdoms lay spread across the world. Hither came Conan, the Cimmerian, sword in hand. It is I, his chronicler, who knows well his saga. Now let me tell you of the days of high adventure. From Stephen or Else Media, this is Hither Came Conan, treading the jeweled thrones of Hyboria beneath my sneakered feet, one comic book at a time. I'm your host, my name is Stephen, and today we begin a six-week trek that takes us away from the Marvel Conan books and journeys instead into the first issue from the second publisher to have control of the Conan license, which was Dark Horse. Dark Horse gained the Conan license in 2003, and they kicked off their 15-year reign first with a zero issue. Now, we are here to talk about Conan issue number one. However, for context, let's review the events of the zero issue real quick, because for many a new Conan fan at the time, this was their first peek into the Hyborian Age, or at least the Hyborian Age from the Dark Horse point of view. The zero issue was published on November the 12th, 2003, It sold for just 25 cents, and it is entitled The Legend. It was written by Kurt Busick with art by Carrie Nord, letters by Richard Starkings and Comic Craft, and the colors were by Dave Stewart. Into the boat! The prince of an unnamed kingdom is leading an exploratory team that's out assessing lands newly conquered by his father. They come across the ruins of an ancient city where, in an underground chamber, they find the statue of a long-dead king. The name, carved into the base of the statue, is Conan. Oh, hi, Conan. How are you? The prince is super curious about this Conan person, and he orders Wazir, his advisor, to go through the ancient texts and learn more about him. Days later, Wazir, a guy who looks a bit too much like Thothamon, gives his report. And that report just turns out to be the Nemedian Chronicles, you know, No, O Prince, that between the years when the oceans drank Atlantis and the gleaming cities and the years of the rise of the sons of Arius, there was an age undreamed of when shining kingdoms lay across the world like blue mantles, blah, 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 blah. It's the opening to The Phoenix on the Sword from Robert E. Howard, the first ever published Conan story. And it's, of course, what we use in the intro as well, because it's used in both of the... uh, Conan movies. Anyway, I think that this Zero issue is just a great bit of comics. And I don't know, I thought it was a very clever way to introduce the character to new readers because as they go through the Nemedian Chronicles, we get this great art by the team of Carrie Nord and Dave Stewart. And it just opens up the world for us, gives us kind of just a really brief look at the world. And for new readers, anybody who may not have a lot of experience with Conan or know a lot about Conan or just, you know, haven't read a lot, it really 
kind of whets your appetite, that zero issue. It just, it's gorgeous looking and the artwork that goes along with the reading of the Nemedian Chronicles. It's just some amazing looking stuff. Now, I do want to clarify that while I have read some of the Dark Horse run before, you know, I, I was collecting comics at the time that this issue came out. I did drop out of collecting not long after the Dark Horse run started. So, I mean, I know I got the zero issue and I know I got issue number one, but beyond that, I don't remember how many further issues I picked up at the time. But of course, since then, I did read the first trade collection, which is called The Frost Giant's Daughter and Other Stories, and that collected the zero issue along with issues one through six and a few pages from issue seven. But that's about as far as I got. However, with that said, I do own all of the epic collections that Marvel released after they got the Conan license that second time. And some of those collect most, if not all, of the Dark Horse issues. And I have read the issues that adapted, you know, the Phoenix on the Sword, the Scarlet Citadel, the Tower of the Elephant, the God in the Bull, and Rogues in the House. Still, when you consider the number of Conan issues that Dark Horse published in those 15 years, yeah, like I said, I didn't get very far into the run. And that's an important fact for you to know, because when I say that I am pretty sure that Wazir in issue zero is Thothamon, for all I know, those of you who've read most or all of the Dark Horse run may already know the answer. I don't know the answer, so I'm going to talk about it. So there's this moment in the zero issue when the prince and Wazir first come across the statue of Conan. Well, Wazir's got this look on his face that is, it's almost like it's angry recognition, you know, like he sees the statue and he immediately is like that son of a bitch. He was a thorn in my side for many years. I'm glad he's dead, but God, was that guy an asshole? That's what that, that's what his look, that's what his face looks like. And so if he is Thothamon, then of course he's a wizard. And I know, well, from what little I know of Thothamon, he does have this power and he has used it to make himself, I don't know if he's immortal, but he has lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe more hundreds after that. He's, he's lived a long time. But the look on his face there in that zero issue is just freaking great. And that's a testament to the artist, Carrie Nord. Plus, you know, Wazir doesn't really want to tell the prince Conan's story. He kind of pushes back and he seems really annoyed about it. but. You know, he does because it's the prince after all. But yeah, some of you or all of you may already be aware of the fact that Wazir and Thothamon are the same guy. I don't know. I mean, I have no idea if they even reveal it one way or the other at any point in the Dark Horse run, but I'm pretty positive that that's who it is. Anyway, the Zero Issue ends with Wazir still telling the prince Conan's story through the Nemedian Chronicles. And on the final page, he's reading, little is known as yet of the Sumerian's early days in the dark forest-locked reaches of his native land. He had some 16 summers when he first ventured beyond its borders into the lands of the Iser. And that takes us directly into Conan issue number one. That issue hit the stands on February the 25th, 2004. It sold for $2.99, and it is entitled out of the Darksome Hills. It was written by Kurt Busick with pencils by Carrie Nord, inks by Thomas Yates, 
The letters were by Richard Starkings and Comic Craft, and the colors were by Dave Stewart. Into the tunnel. Outside a burning Asgardian village, an Icer woman with a crying baby flees for her life from a Vannerman warrior who chases her into the forest. The Vannerman catches her, and before he can rape her or kill her or do both, Conan is there. The Sumerian, just 16 years old, but looking like a full-grown man, You're so big and so well-grown, has been passing through when he heard the screams of the women and children from the village and swinging by to check it out, caught sight of the fleeing Icer woman and her pursuer. Well, Conan being Conan, he intervenes. In other words, he uses a big old two-handed longsword to lop the guy's head off with one swing. With the woman and her baby safe, and with the sounds of screaming still coming from the Icer village, Conan sets off to investigate. Striding confidently into the burning village, Conan finds a band of Vannermen slaughtering the women, the children, and the old men. The Icer warriors, it seems, are away. They're off raiding or something, and the red-bearded Vannermen, taking advantage of their absence, have come to kill all who have remained behind. And so, taking all of this in, the Sumerian calls out, making his presence known to the raiders. Hey, ass butt. The Vannermen turn as one to face Conan, as their leader, Tur, who's wearing a rather silly-looking helmet, orders three of the men to slay the young Sumerian. Ignoring their leader's funny hat, Nice hat! The three Vannermen step up to Conan, telling the well-armed youth, that they have a blood feud with the Icer, and that if the Sumerian sides with the village, then he's going to die with them as well. I'm going to kill you, the brick. Conan, disgusted by what he stumbled into, responds to the Vannerman, questioning the idea of a blood feud that means making war on women and children before he beckons the three warriors forward, telling them that in his land, men settle their quarrels like men. Suddenly, the Sumerian is among them, swinging his massive sword. And before the Vannerman can react, Conan takes the arm from one of them at the elbow. I'm quite all right, Barbara. I ran it under a cold tap. The fighting escalates as Tur orders more men to attack the Sumerian. And for a time, even against such odds, Conan holds his own, cutting down any Northman that dares to stand in his way. Before Conan can kill them all, however... The Vannermen run, alerted by the sound of approaching horses, which can only mean one thing. The Icer warriors have returned. The woman that Conan saved stands beside him as the blonde Icer men ride into the village. The men, seeing the carnage all around, assume at first that the Sumerian is responsible. The woman tries to assure the men, specifically the guy in charge, the Icer chieftain Njord, that Conan had nothing to do with the attack on the village. But she's interrupted by one of the other warriors, Sjarl, who doesn't trust Conan one bit. Sjarl? Sjarl? Jarl? I I don't know. Sjarl climbs down from his horse and confronts the young Sumerian. He calls Conan boy and demands to know if he's a scout for the Vannerman raiding party or if his people, he calls them Sumerian filth, are in the pay of the Vannerman. Conan, rage dancing behind his eyes, responds by spitting on the man's foot. Sajarl, calling the Sumerian a mangy cur, pulls his sword and attacks Conan, who, though unarmed, his longsword sticking point down in the ground near them, knocks the man of Asgard on his ass. 
Two more blonde warriors grabbed Conan from behind, each taking hold of the Sumerian's muscly arms. Conan throws them off, however, and retrieving Sjarl's sword, threatens to give Sjarl another smile, a redder smile, if the others don't stay back. Then, after berating Sjarl for daring to call him boy, he who has spoken as a man at council since before he was 15, he who stood at Venarium and sent a score of Aquilonians to hell, Conan turns to Niord and introduces himself. Conan, still standing over the prone form of Sjarl, his sword pointed at the man's throat, asks Niord if this is how they treat someone who has saved the lives of their women and children. As Niord ponders this, one of his men approaches and reports in a whisper that four Vannermen are dead in the snow around where Conan had been standing, and that another dead Vannerman was found nearer the forest. Niord, seeing the truth of things, apologizes to Conan, then thanks him for his aid before inviting the Sumerian to stay to help them put out the fires. Conan agrees, and they get to work. Meanwhile, Sjarl pulls himself to his feet and approaches the woman whom Conan had saved. Her name is Henga, and he asks her if she's okay. Henga's response is full of ice and anger over Sjarl, who is apparently her man, not being there to protect her. Soon the fires are put out, and the ice are dead sent forth to Valhalla. As the sun sets, Conan joins Niord and his people for a meal where Hanga, much to Zajarl's regret, asks to sit with Niord, who is her father and the young Sumerian. Conan then tells Niord his story. He talks of his grandfather who wandered the land in his youth, something Sumerians are not normally known to do. He talks about how, when he was a child, his grandfather would tell him stories of his travels. Tales of faraway lands, tales that Conan never forgot, tales that inspired Conan to leave Sumeria and see the world for himself. Conan tells Niord that of all the lands that his grandfather told him about, there is one in particular that the young Sumerian wishes to see above all. Hyperborea, a land of eternal summer where feathers fall from the sky in place of snow and where elegant spires of basalt and marble tower over pleasant lands rich with precious stones and metals. Niord and the others seem a bit alarmed that Conan would travel to Hyperborea willingly. However, rather than warn Conan of the dangers that their alarm seems to hint at, Niord asks the Sumerian to delay his travels and join them instead to track down the Vannerman raiding party and to help them dish out a little retribution. Conan, admitting that his people aren't overly fond of the men of Asgard, points out that they like the Vanner even less, and so he agrees to go with them in the morning. Later that evening, after everyone has retired to their homes, Sjarl creeps over to Henga's place, only to find her sneaking off into the dark woods beyond the village. He follows and watches in anger as she meets up with Conan for some smooching under the trees. I uh, just snogging away. We was not snogging! The next morning, Conan and the men of Asgard gather. Conan, at the behest of Niord, has acquired himself a bit of armor and a new sword. Niord gathers the men around him to make sure that everyone is ready to go. You know, have they brushed their teeth? Do they have their wallets? Have they peed? It's going to be a long trip after all. He also announces that Gorm, their best tracker, will lead the way. And Conan asks if he might ride along with Gorm. The Sumerian has some tracking skills but is eager to learn more. 
Both Niord and Gorm agree. And as the issue ends, as Conan and the men of Asgard ride out into the snowy wild, Sajaro whispers to his bald buddy that if it is Hyperborea that the Sumerian seeks, he will be only too happy to see him on his way. Hither Came Conan will return after these messages. Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast, a monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis. We started with the very first issue, and our coverage goes all the way through breakdowns. We're going issue by issue in release order, tackling two comics per episode, both a Justice League America issue and a Justice League Europe issue. Now, along the way, we're also taking time out for special episodes covering the quarterly book, interviews with various comic book creators, discussing the plethora of spin-off series, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and more. And when we're all done, we'll wrap up our coverage by looking at the 2003 and 2005 stories formerly known as the Justice League, and I can't believe it's not the Justice League. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Batman. Martian Manhunter. Captain Atom. Fire. Ice. Rocket Red. The Flash. The Elongated Man. Maxwell Lord. Elrond. Power Girl. Renard de Rousse. I mean, Crimson Fox. Guy Gardner. Metamorpho. Booster Gold. Blue Beetle. Nort. Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast. Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Want to make something of it? And now back to Hither Came Conan. All right, so this is normally the part of the episode where I would share with you everything I know about the issue, like all the background and the behind the scenes type stuff. But I really don't know anything about the issue or at least the making of the issue. I looked. Trust me, you know how much I hate research. And I did spend at least tens of minutes trying to hunt down any articles that talked about the making of the issue, but I couldn't find anything. So instead, before I go through the issue and talk about my favorite bits, how about I point out a couple of things in the issue that weren't my favorite bits? You know, get a little bit negative here for a minute or two before I vomit praise all over the book. Wait a minute, man. I don't want to hear anything negative. First up are the narration boxes. Now, if you've been reading Conan comics for a while, and I have for the last eight months, you get kind of used to the narration boxes. You know, the Marvel comics from the 70s have them. Even the Titan comics that are being published today have them. And they're just the narrator who is not a character in the books. It's not Conan. It's not someone who travels with Conan. It's like this omniscient storyteller that uses prose combined with the art and the dialogue to tell the story. Well, in the Dark Horse books, the narration boxes are designed first off to look like they're torn at the bottom, which that doesn't bother me. But the font is a typewriter font. And I understand the reasoning behind that because I feel like what they're saying there with those narration boxes is that the narrator is Robert E. Howard and that what we're reading is, you know, the actual typed manuscript of the story that old Bob Howard banged out there at his typewriter. And I get it. I understand it. I even appreciate the idea. And while I've gotten used to him since the first time I read this issue back in 2004, 
that first time through, I was immediately taken aback by those boxes. To me, it felt like, why is this modern looking font being used in this fantasy sword and sorcery tale? It was, it was, ah, how to describe it? It was like, all right, think of the movie. I think it's called A Knight's Tale with, uh, God, I can't remember, Heath Ledger. It's set during the Renaissance or mid, I, I don't know. I'm not good with time periods, but it's got freaking Bill Shakespeare in it. But it has modern rock and roll guitar music in the movie as the soundtrack. And again, it's something I got used to and, and now rather enjoy. But at first I was, again, taken out of the movie because technically it's a period piece and there are modern guitars in it. And that's kind of how I felt about these text boxes. It's, they just didn't fit the aesthetic of the issue in my mind. And again, I've gotten used to them and I completely understand why they are the way they are, but I felt like I would be doing myself a disservice if I didn't mention them. That's not right. The second thing I want to point out is Tyr's helmet. Tyr's the guy or Tur or however you pronounce it, T-I-R. He's the guy that is in charge of the Vannerman raiding party. And his helmet is just ridiculous looking. And it's all because of the horn. So the helmet itself is pretty basic. It's like a inverted copper bowl that sits atop his head. There's no decoration. There's no carving. There's, there's nothing. It's literally just an inverted. It's, it's like he took a copper bowl and just sat it on his head. But sticking out of the front of it like a freaking unicorn is this horn. And it's not, it looks like a real horn. It looks like a horn that he has taken off of some, some, some kind of animal. But it's kind of a twisty corkscrew type horn. And it, I mean, to me, it looks like it's come off a freaking narwhal. And maybe it did. Maybe that's what they're trying to tell us here is that at some point, Tur slayed a narwhal and stole its horn and stuck it on its on on his helmet. But <laughs> I'm sorry. It just it looks ridiculous. He looks super silly. And I don't know if I would consider that a negative thing, but I just <laughs> I just find him ridiculous looking. And maybe that's the point. Maybe we're supposed to find him ridiculous looking. I don't know. I'm not prepared to pursue my line of inquiry any further. As I think this is getting too silly. The third thing and last thing that I wanted to point out are the horses, especially how they appear on page seven of the story. Carrie Nord, who I love, the art in this book is phenomenal. It's wonderful. It's gorgeous. I love it so much. His horses look fine. They look like horses, but there is absolutely no sense of movement to the way he draws horses. So you see them there on page seven. That's supposed to be the scene where the Icer warriors have ridden into the village. And to me, when I look at that panel, the horses to me look like they don't move, like they are wooden, they're fake. And maybe they have little wheels that we can't see sticking out of their hooves. And they just kind of rolled in, <laughs> rolled into the scene. That's, that's what they look like to me. And I just found them very strange looking <laughs> in the context of the scene. But yeah, three items that I want to point out there that were not my favorite bits. And really, they're kind of three small items and they do not in any way hinder my enjoyment of the issue. And speaking of my enjoyment of the issue, let's talk about Steven's, Steven's favorite, favorite bits. bits. So we'll start with the cover, as we normally do. The cover artist here was uh, Joseph Michael Linzer. And 
it's a really nice looking cover. It's got Conan. He's kind of looking up at the camera. The camera's kind of mounted above him. And so we're looking down at Conan. He has a sword in his hand. He's standing in the snow. There are at least three fallen men around him, dead, and there is blood splashed all over the snow. It's a very nice looking cover. However, having said that, the one thing I always got from this cover is for some reason, and it's probably just me, if I was handed this cover with no text on it at all, no context, I wasn't told who this was, I don't know that I would immediately know that it's Conan. I wouldn't just look at this and go, oh, that must be from a new Conan book. There's just something about the way Joseph Michael Linzer, because he does the covers for, I think, at least these first six issues. There's just something about the way, or at least, I don't know, maybe it's just this one issue, this one cover. It just, for for me, there's just something about him. It doesn't look quite like Conan. I mean, now that I, you know, once you know that it is Conan, it's like, sure, that's Conan. But I feel like, uh, my, my, my immediate reaction every time I look at this cover is, I may not have understood that that was Conan the first time I saw it, if there was no indication that it was, in fact, Conan. He's Conan, the librarian. Getting into the issue, page one, panel one, we get a box with the following text. Little is known as yet of the Sumerian's early days in the dark, forest-locked reaches of his native land. He had some 16 summers when he first ventured beyond its borders into the land's of the Icer, which is exactly, text-wise anyway, exactly how the Zero Issue ended. I really enjoy that. I like how they fit that together. You know, if this was a, a movie or a TV show, then the Zero Issue would be the uh, pre, I don't know, obviously the opening, which would then, as that bit of text was being read aloud, it would transition to the past because Wazir is, is reading this text from, I guess, the future. I, <laughs> it's hard to talk about past and future when you're talking about a world that is, A, a fantasy world, but is also supposed to be part of our past. Anyway, I really enjoyed that. I thought that was a pretty neat transition. Hither Came Conan will return after these messages. And now back to Hither Came Conan. Conan himself in this issue, I really like this Conan. This is a Conan I can get behind because, you know, he's just he's just this guy. He's out there. He's he's traveling the world. He just happens to be walking by and he hears these screams and sees a woman who is about to be attacked by a man. And so Conan, he comes to her rescue. He just he can't just stand idly by and watch this woman get hurt. A woman who is a stranger, a woman who he knows Based on where he's at, he knows that she's an icer, and he says at some point in the issue that the Sumerians are not overly fond of the icer, but I think he recognizes that the man attacking her is a Vannerman, and apparently the, the Sumerians dislike the Vanir even more than they dislike the icer. But Conan is just the type of guy, even at 16 years old, which is a couple years younger than the Conan that we see in the first issue of the Marvel, Conan the Barbarian, issue number one from 1970. I thought that was interesting as well. But this is a Conan I like. He saves the woman and then he goes into the village to see what's going on there because that's probably what drew his attention in the first place. And despite being severely outnumbered, he just starts throwing down. And I get the sense because of that action, because of what he's doing there, I get the sense that 
He walks into the village. He sees what's going on. He doesn't like it. And knowing that he's probably going to die because there's 15, 20 guys there, he's still going to defend these people. And I think that's a Conan I can really get behind. And with that in mind, when Conan intervenes and helps this woman, that's when we get page three. It is the splash page and the title page that shows us the title, Out of the Darksome Hills. You've got the woman laying in the snow. You've got the Vannerman who is straddling her. And you've got Conan standing over them both, screaming. He has just swung this giant two-handed longsword and the Vannerman's head has been lopped from his body. It's flying through the air and there's blood all over the place. And Conan just looks good, okay? So if we just look back at the 24 issues of Conan the Barbarian that we've read so far from the Marvel run, you know, this is a Conan who in the Marvel days ran around in little fur trunks, boots, and pretty much nothing else. And here is Conan in the north, in the ice and snow. He's got pants on. He's got a helmet. It it is a helmet with horns, but the horns are sticking out of the side. He's wearing some kind of, I don't know what you would call this shirt. It's like a long flowing, thick coat type shirt that opens up at the bottom like a, like a freaking dress. That might even not be part of the shirt. He might be wearing some kind of just big, thick, insulated skirt to help keep him warm. And then he's got a red cape or cloak on. He, he looks great. He looks like he, he is part of this world. He doesn't look out of place running through the snow like he did in what issue two of Conan the Barbarian running through the snow with little fur trunks on and sandals and a fur cape and that's it. But this page, this one splash page, it's my favorite page of the entire issue. I say this all the time, but I would love to have this as a poster hanging on my wall. But when I first read the issue 20 years ago, you know, other than the two movies and a handful of the Marvel comics, I really didn't have a lot of exposure to Conan at that time, except for the two old paperbacks that I had just sitting around the house growing up that I know I've talked about before. But as you know, there were a series of paperback collections of the Conan stories written by Robert E. Howard, some of them rewritten by L. Sprague de Camp, some new ones written by L. Sprague de Camp. But they were published and then republished throughout the late 60s and into the 80s. And two of those were in my house. And though I don't ever recall reading them, I will never forget their Frank Frazetta covers. One of them is a paperback that was just titled Conan. It was the first of the 12-volume set. And in the book, it had the Tower of the Elephant, the God and the Bull, Rogues in the House, and others. And the cover painting, which is titled Man Ape, depicts a scene from Rogues in the House. The other paperback we had was called Conan the Sumerian, and it was the second of the 12-volume set. And it had Frost Giant's Daughter, Queen of the Black Coast, and other such stories. And the cover painting for that paperback is called Snow Giants. And it depicts a scene from the Frost Giant's Daughter, where Conan is facing the two Frost Giants. And it's that painting that my mind immediately goes to when I look at page number three. And... I don't know. Carrie Nord just has this way of evoking Frank Frazetta with his art, especially when combined with the inks of Thomas Yates and the colors of Dave Stewart. And 
while you feel Frazetta, when you're looking at it, the art here in this issue really is its own thing. And yeah, it's freaking gorgeous. And it's, it's something to behold. Conan facing off against the men of Asgard is a pretty awesome scene as well, especially when the first three of them step up to him and he immediately still wielding that two-handed longsword cuts off one of the men's arms. Tis but a scratch. A scratch? Your arm's off. No, it isn't. Well, what's that then? I've heard worse. You liar. Come on, you pansy. And then more men attack him and... It's just a great couple of pages. A lot of blood. It's very violent. It's just just gorgeous looking art as Conan is just hacking into these men and blood is just spraying and body parts are flying. It's, it's not that terrible. No, I meant terribly violent. Oh, yeah. It, again, it's a gorgeous looking issue. And for me, when I look at Carrie Nord's Conan compared to Joseph Michael Linzer's Conan, to me, there's there's no question. When I look at this guy in the comic book, if you showed me some of these pages and didn't tell me, you know, there was no text, didn't tell me who it was, I feel like there would be no question in my mind, oh, that's Conan. Whereas the cover, again, I, I, I didn't feel that. I love the way Conan responds to Sjarl, or however you pronounce his name, when Sjarl, who's obviously a bit of a dick, kind of climbs down from his horse and he gets all in Conan's face and Conan just spits on his foot. I, I love that because... It To me, it reminds me of a scene in the Scarlet Citadel where Conan has been taken captive. He's, he's the, a king at this point. He's the king of Aquilonia. He's been taken captive by these leaders from other nations who want to put someone else on the throne of Aquilonia and then basically run the country themselves using their puppet king and whatnot. But they have Conan as their captive. They, they have him brought in so that they can sneer down at him and, and offer him basically, hey, we'll give you money if you just sign over your kingdom to us. And he ends up just spitting on one of them in response. And I don't know if, if, if Busick used that as inspiration for this scene, but it wouldn't surprise me. The bit in here where Conan is talking about Hyperborea, I like that. The art is just, again, great. It makes me want to go see Hyperborea, but there's something... You know, these, these, these men of Asgard are very, you want to go to Hyperborea? That's crazy. But yet they don't tell him why he shouldn't. That, I don't know, maybe I should have included this in the other segment. But to me, that's kind of one of those bits of writing that I've always found confusing why a writer would do that. You know, it's, I feel like that if this was, I don't know, I feel like Niord would say something to Conan at that time. You know, not... I'll tell you about Hyperborea later. I'll, we'll save that for later. I'm not going to warn you about it now because, you know, I want you to go with this. I'm, I'll, I'll save it for later, which just seems dumb. It just seems like a dumb thing to do. And it, and of course, it does tie into something that we're going to see later in the issue or, or, or in the series, in these six issues, especially when you consider what Sajarl tells his buddy at the end of the issue about, you know, if Conan wants to go see Hyperborea, I'll make sure he gets there. So there's obviously something about Hyperborea that is not good. We don't want Conan to go to Hyperborea, but despite the fact that everybody here in this village knows you don't want to go to Hyperborea, they they just don't tell him. And I, I found that kind of weird. Conan, a little later in the issue, when he has on his new armor, he's still wearing the same clothes, but he's got like this shirt of, I don't know what you'd call it. It's not plate mail. It's not chain mail. 
It's more like chain mail than plate mail, but instead of links uh, or rings, they're small metal plates, kind of like dragon scale, except it's metal. And then he's got a new sword. Not sure why he didn't keep the two-handed long sword. That, that's kind of a weird story point as well. You know, when the ice are right into the village, you can see Conan standing there and you see his two-handed long sword and it's stuck in the ground in front of him. And then we never see it again. And I'm not sure why. I mean, it's nice for Conan to have a shorter sword, something he can swing around with just one hand. But at the same time, I don't know. I think I would strap that big long sword onto my back as well. I'm just, I guess I'm one of those people that when I watch movies, like, for example, if I watch a movie and a guy is running around with, with, a, with, a, with a gun or two and he shoots all the bullets out of his gun and then he tosses the gun aside and picks up another one, it's like, hold on to the other one, you know? just in case. And everybody you shoot, pick up their gun as well, because you never know if you need it. And granted, you can only carry so many guns, but I I just feel like I'd be the type of person that would, as long as I can carry it, I'm going to pick up some guns. I think there's a line from Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. It's a Western where one of the deputies in the town of Big Whiskey, one of the deputies only has one arm. He starts, uh, he picks up one of his guns and he unloads it and reloads it. And you find out that one of the other deputies is like, well, what are you doing that for? I just loaded those for you. And the guy's like, I don't trust anybody loading my guns. And the other dude says back to him and he goes, well, I just don't get it. You, I don't remember the exact line. So I'm paraphrasing, but he's basically like, I don't get it. You got three guns, but only one arm. And the guy, again, paraphrasing, says something to the effect of, I just don't want to be shot down for lack of shooting back. And that's kind of the way I think of it. So why abandon this perfectly good two-handed longsword that he used to kill a bunch of Vannermen and only set out with a short one-handed sword? I don't know. Seems kind of weird to me. You got three pistols and you only got one arm, for Christ's sake. I just don't want to get killed for lack of shooting back. Other than that, I mean, really, the only thing else I can say again about this issue is just how great the art looks. Every page, there's something. There's something on every single page that just draws my eye and I have to just stare at. And I'm looking, for example, well, I'll just use an example. Second to the last page, very first panel. Niorda's on his horse. He's got his men gathered around him. He's saying, men of Asgard, is everyone armed, provisioned, prepared? And behind him is a guy with a helmet that has two great big horns sticking out of the side horizontally pointing down like they they stick out to the sides horizontally and then at the ends they curve down just a slight bit love that guy i love that guy and then on the other side of the panel is a is a bald guy with a big bushy beard and you can't see, you only see one side of his head but he's got a braid where his sideburns would be so he's grown his sideburns into braids love that guy as well conan on this page looks great the way they've just drawn him he's got this flat wide face that's what i think of when i think of conan it's like this flat wide face his face is wide but they've got him here you can't see his eyes it's just it's great and then Niord at the very bottom it's all everything there's something on every page that just i'm just in awe of how great this book looks and though i've read these six issues at least twice at this point, I'm looking forward to continuing on with the next issue. And those folks were my favorite bits, which means I have nothing left to say about this issue. Everybody out. 
Next week, we continue with the Dark Horse run with Conan number two from March of 2004. And that is the Frost Giant's daughter. So yeah, uh, I guess I'm going to talk about the Frost Giant's daughter again. Not sure what else I have to say about that story, but we'll see. We'll see. And hey, if you don't want to wait a week, second level members of the Super Secret Steven Society have access to the next four episodes to binge now. Join today by using the link in the show notes or go to secretsociety.stevenorelse.com. Second level memberships are just $2 a month and all episodes are ad free. Otherwise, until next week, folks, keep your swords close by, never stop treading them jeweled thrones, and most importantly, be nice to each other. Bye. I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Hither Came Conan. Questions and comments can be directed to feedback at hithercameconan.com or come join us on social media. Just look for at Conan Podcast on Twitter and Blue Sky and at Hither Came Conan on Instagram, Threads, and Facebook. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the show over at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Donations to the show can be made at donate.hithercameconan.com or become a member of the Super Secret Steven Society and get episodes early and ad-free. Join now using the link in the show notes or go to secretsociety.hithercameconan.com. Memberships start at just a dollar a month. Many wards and feuds did Conan fight Honor and fear were heaped upon his name. In time, he became a king by his own hand. This story shall also be told. <sighs> Meanwhile, Sajaro pulls himself to his feet. <laughs> Niord asks the Sumerian to delay his travels and join them instead to drag. and join them instead to track down the Vannerman Raiding Raider not having a really good time with that one and now that I've said that aloud this time I don't know if I said that correctly when I first introduced this issue so I'm going to go back and I'm going to do that real quick just in case I have to plug this in later This issue hit the stands on February 25th, 2004. It sold for just $2.99, and it is entitled Out of the Darksome Hills. Of course, I'll probably find when I'm editing that I said it correctly in the first place. And then if that's the case, this is going to be a blooper. I don't know why I said it like that. Anyway, page three. Booba da bee bob. I got that doo-doo. Got the episode done, done, done. So happy. So happy I'm done. Of course, I still got to edit the sucker. I got to edit it. But I'm happy. I'm happy for you that you get a listen to the episode. I apologize. I have no idea what's wrong with me. Just don't think I can move through life knowing that a guy named Steven did this to me. How could you let this happen, Steven? Enough talk.